the original kernel of the idea for this seminar um, was planted in my mind um, some years ago when I myself was an MFA student and a teacher of mine was talking with me about sections of my novel. We were kind of talking about um, structuring the beginning of my novel and um, she was talking about the first 30 pages and she started talking about it in a very visual way. She was talking about the scenes and how um, they struck her um, in these color tones and she was talking about them going from blue to gray to black um, and she was encouraging me to shift some things so that there would be a little bit more contrast in there and um, as she was talking about that I um, was I just started thinking about you know wh why don't we talk more about writing in terms of um, color or in terms of light and dark like that and how um, in music you know we talk about minor and major keys and in painting there are some terms um, for darkness and light that um, I think are useful and can be useful for us as writers too. So on your little sheet that I passed out there, um, there are the terms chiaroscuro and tenebrism, which tenebrism is basically a kind of pronounced form of chiaroscuro, which um, tenebrism means murky in Italian. Um, and chiaroscuro is when one of the dominant features in a painting is the violent contrast of light and dark or a strong directional light that lifts out and emphasizes certain details and adds a lot of drama to a painting. And um, kind of some of the most famous practitioners of um, Chiaroscuro were Caravaggio and Gentileschi, who were late 16th, early 17th century painters. And their styles um, contrasted a lot with some of the other contemporary painters who, whose paintings sort of more exemplified like graceful harmony, um, both somewhat in subject matter and also in in the color palette and the choices that I made as far as lighting. Um, so I'm going to have us look at um, two of these images to start out with. Um, it's okay. We, I can keep, yeah, okay. So um, there's um, two paintings that I'm going to have us look at. Um, this is a Caravaggio painting. Um, both of the paintings actually are um, paintings of um, Judith and Holofernes, um, a biblical scene where um, the widow Judith charmed the enemy Assyrian general Holofernes and got invited into his tent um, and then beheaded him. Um, and um, the, so Chiaroscuro doesn't, to, to be using the Chiaroscuro, it does not have to be a violent um, depiction of something violent. It's more about the light, but it does lend itself to this type of thing. So looking at how much darkness and light there is. Um, and then we can look at the other one too really quickly. If it's there, it's okay if it's not. Okay, that's fine. So you can know it's okay, you can Google it. There's, they're, they're similar um, and they both, um, both of these images use that kind of strong directional light and a lot of the painting is in darkness. Um, the thing that interests me about these, these paintings is how simultaneously beautiful and kind of terrifying they are. Um, and this contrast of light and dark, obviously the subject matter also, but even just um, the colors that are used in the lighting um, makes a sort of beautiful mixture of beautiful and horrifying. Um, and I think that this contrast um, is something that we can, we can take from this. Oh yeah, so here's, here's the other one, same, same thing. And this one even more kind of pronounced so much of the, the painting is in darkness, right? Um, and that strong directional light and what it is that we focus on um, because of the, the light and the dark. Um, so I, and 
whenever, like, I and mean, we can keep it up there for a minute, but that's all that I need that for. Um, and when I think about this in terms of writing, I'm, I'm reminded of there's, um, I put a couple quotes on the top of your handout there, and that last quote is a quote from the writer um, Josip Novakovic. Um, and he, he was talking about fiction writing, but he said, if you run, you move forward by creating imbalance, and not to fall, you put your foot forward. And I think that this imbalance, this off rhythm of the unexpected um, and deep contrasts is, is what's going on in these paintings and what should be going on a lot in our writing. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. And it also, it goes along with when Jesse was talking about um, Baxter and not all the arrows going in the same direction, right? So, um, so if we as writers want to use contrast and imbalance to create something striking, something where we can direct the light and the darkness, like in these paintings, um, then what tools do we have at our disposal? And that's where the handout I gave you is kind of just a, basically an outline of what I'm going to talk about today. And obviously, there's many, many ways that we could use it, more than I can talk about in my time today. But um, I'm going to kind of lead us through some techniques that I find useful. And um, basically, we're going to do some kind of close reading, looking at the text that I assigned. Um, then we're going to do a little writing exercise, and then I'm going to try to leave enough time at the end for us to have some discussion. Um, I'm going to start with what I see as kind of the broadest and, and narrowing down. The, perhaps the broadest and oldest form of contrast in storytelling is this idea of good versus evil or light versus dark. Um, we see it in all sorts of different religious texts, right? We see it in lots of different myths, fairy tales. Um, the Bible starts out with a story, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, right? And we go a bit further in the Garden of Eden, and we find that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, and we learn that to know the difference between good and evil is to be godlike. Um, and we also learn that man inherently has evil in him. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Um, and this creates a tension there, right? The division of light and dark, good and evil, um, and then man who is made in God's image but who has evil in his heart from his youth. Um, I think that an, if we think about another type of broad mythic darkness, another place that we can draw inspiration from is lullabies. Um, in the 1920s, um, Federico Garcia Lorca started collecting Spanish lullabies, and he gave this lecture in 1928 in Madrid, and he said that, that in his opinion, Spain utilizes its saddest melodies and most melancholy texts to tinge her children's first slumber. Um, and if you think about it, most lullabies are, are really, I think, great examples of this um, contrast um, and imbalance of light and dark, um, sweet and sad, right? So their primary use is to lull babies to sleep. They have this very sweet rhythm, and it's been you know, scientifically proven that lullabies can help preemies gain weight, can help um, children with like irregular heartbeats, help regulate um, their heartbeats. Like there's something very sweet and lulling about these melodies, um, and they're that way because they're intended to help a baby go to sleep, right? But almost always, these songs carry a darkness within them. Um, in Rockabye Baby, right, the cradle falls and the baby falls. Um, we have the Hushabye, where there's the poor little baby is crying mama as the birds and butterflies flutter around his eye. Um, and this is not just Spanish lullabies and, and American lullabies. There's a 200-year-old Arabic, Arabic lullaby that goes, I am a stranger and my neighbors are strangers. 
I have no friends in this world. Winter night and the husband is absent. Right? So like we see those words on the page and they're so dark, but we think about a mother cradling her baby and singing a very sweet tune to those words. Um, there's, there's that imbalance. And there's an excellent essay by um, Rivka Gauchin where she talks about lullabies. Um, and she says that she believes that lullabies are repositories of sadness because the intended audience, the baby, is not judgmental and also cannot share the secrets that are in the song. Um, most of the time lullabies are most often used for you know, very young babies, pre-verbal. Um, and so it's a safe place for the singer to speak of the darkness within them. Um, so if we look at our, our shared cultural texts, lullabies, right, religious texts, myths, um, fairy tales, we see that this tension between light and dark is as old as humans, and it's a very naturally a part of us all, um, which makes it something that, that is very natural for us to use in our writing, but it's also dangerously familiar, right? It's, it's something that, um, you know, we might go, how, do I, how am I going to make that fresh? It's, it's, it's already been done. Um, and so with that question in mind, how do we make this archetypical good and evil, light and dark, fresh? I want us to turn to the, the Blood Meridian um, reading. Um, this is a section, um, obviously, it's just part of a chapter. Um, and in this section, we're traveling with the Glanton gang through New Mexico. Um, and among them is Judge Holden, who's often referred to simply as the judge. Um, and what... Do you all find anywhere in this text where the judge talks about his um, vision of order in the universe or order in creation? And if anybody can recall that passage, I'll have you read a little bit from it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. May I read it? Yes, yes, please. The truth about the world is that if anything is possible, had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled of its strangeness, it would appear to you for what is a hat trick in a medicine show, a fever dream, a trance to be populated with chimeras having neither analog nor president, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show whose ultimate destination, after many a pitch and many a muddy field, field, is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. The universe is no narrow thing, and the order within it is not constrained by any latitude in its conception to repeat what exists in one part and any other part. Even in this world, more things exist without our knowledge than with it, and the order and creation which you see is that which you have put there, like a string in a maze, so that you shall not lose your way. For existence has its own order, and that no man's mind can compass, that mind itself being but a fact among others. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another, well, there's a few different parts in here, but one part specifically in this text where um, the judge talks about his vision of war. Um, and... Can I get another volunteer to read that part before we talk about this? Um, yeah. So, like the bottom, starting with the judge smiles. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. The judge smiles, his face shining with grease. What right man would have it any other way? He said. The good book does indeed count war and evil, said Irving. Yet there's many a bloody tale of war inside it. It makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures. As well ask men what they think of stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. 
the ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be that way and not some other way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we um, get the judge's um, kind of philosophy in a nutshell here in these two quotations, right? And um, as we are listening or reading to those, um, we probably have a lot of different associations coming up, right? I mean, he even references the Bible in there, right? And we are probably maybe thinking back to like that quote that I said in the beginning, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, right? Or there's Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it, right? So these are not, Cormac McCarthy didn't invent these ideas, right? These are not like brand new, nobody thought about this before. Oh, wow, man, you know, has evil inside of him. Um, so how is this being made fresh? Well, one way, um, one contrast that I want us to think about and talk about in here is the language versus the content. Even that, though, is in, in many ways not entirely fresh. This beautiful language that Cormac McCarthy uses to talk about really ugly um, things, but that, too, has a place. You, you can find um, its ancestors in other places, even, even in the Bible, right? This beautiful language, these bloody tales. Um, so that also is not something that he's entirely invented. Um, but something that's fascinating to me about this book is if we think about the context of it, where it's set. So this is in Texas and New Mexico in the 1840s, the late 1840s, right? And I don't know how much anybody knows about what was going on um, in that time, in that place, but the Mexican-American War um, was going on there, and this is the first American war fought on foreign soil. Um, it was started by President James K. Polk. Um, to they wanted to admit Texas as a state. Um, it had been its own kind of it had been a republic separate from Mexico, um, but not a part of the United States. And when the United States wanted to admit it as a state, then Mexico said, like, hold on, wait a second. Basically, this we didn't let this go yet. Um, and so this war started. And it was a war that was um, pretty popularly supported in the United States, this annexation. And it was wrapped up in two ideologies. One was the frontier theory, um, which was this concept that the American male, in order to stay strong, needed to test himself against um, the wild frontier and that we were kind of running out of frontiers in the United States. And the other ideology is manifest destiny, which is essentially the idea that it was God's will that the Americans annex these heathen lands. Um, the lingo of the day said America was reaching out her hands for that which providence has given for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government. So if we think about the judge and all that he is saying, we also think about, I know you only have this one part of the text, but um, I kind of gave you an idea um, there on the first page of what kind of stuff happens in all the text. If we think about that in context of manifest destiny and, and the frontier theory and um, what Americans were saying about the war at that time, it, it gains a whole new set of meanings, right? So these archetypical good, evil, light, dark, Cormac McCarthy doesn't set this book in the Garden of Eden, right? That's been done. I mean, we could find new ways to do it, right? But he sets it on um, in New Mexico and Texas in the 1840s, and so it gains a whole new set of meanings. And so suddenly he's talking about American expansionism, American imperialism, um, and he's using this, this 
really kind of ancient um, language and he's using these ideas of good and evil that he didn't invent these ideas but they gain a lot of new meanings so um, basically I'm saying think about context right if, if you if we feel drawn to um, write about good and evil light and dark in these huge um, kind of metaphorical archetypical ways then maybe one way that we could make it fresh is by putting it in a new context um, and thinking about um, then what what are these concepts of war and concepts of the order in the universe right especially that that the war part yes and also the order in the universe he he is saying if he's saying that that it's like a hat trick it's like a string in a maze then that completely destroys the manifest destiny idea right that you know this this is what we have to do because the heathens need this, right? Well, if the order in the universe doesn't work like that, if it's like a string in a maze, then really these men are just going there because of the bloodthirst inside of them, right? Um, so new, new context can do a lot for these old ideas. Um, the next kind of technique that I want us to think about is um, landscape and how we can use land, we can use um, contrast of light and dark in landscape. Um, and for this, the, re the readings were The Devil's Highway and um, The Breeze Pancake Story. We're going to talk about The Devil's Highway first. Um, this, again, is a real small section of this book, which is a really incredible book. I encourage everybody um, to read it. This is from the opening of the book. Um, it's, a, it's nonfiction, all the rest of my readings are fiction, but I just thought that this really does a great job of um, exemplifying what I wanted to talk about um, with what he does with landscape. And so um, this is also interesting because it's set in a similar-ish area to where Blood Meridian was set 150 years later. Um, and the thematic darkness in Blood Meridian is mostly centered around the humans in it, right? Um, and there's the landscape is definitely a part of that book, but especially in the section that we read, it's about darkness in man. Um, and then in The Devil's Highway, we see it represented almost explicitly in landscape itself, right? This is, the, this is the very beginning of the book. And there are humans in here, but we don't really learn that much about them, right? What we do learn about them comes from learning about the landscape that they came from and then the landscape that they're in. Um, can I get somebody to um, name some of the ways that the landscape that these men came from is described? What are, what are some of the words that are used to describe the place that they came from? Yes. Yeah. Green, lots of green, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep, mist, water, green, soft, butterflies, children, right? And what about this landscape that they find themselves in now? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even the distance is dangerous here, right? Bottom of, of that page four. In the distance, deceptive stands of mesquite trees must have looked like oases. Ten trees a quarter mile apart can look like a cool grove from a distance. In the western desert, 20 miles looks like 10, and 10 miles can kill, 
there was still no water, there wasn't even any shade, right? Like the landscape is filled with all of these dangerous things and then even itself, the very quantity of it is very, very dangerous. Um, so obviously we have a very strong contrast there, right? The, the imbalance there between what they're familiar with and what they associate with home and then where they find themselves. Um, the landscape to me is really the main character in this first section of the Devil's Highway. Um, and, and it even has a history to it, much like you might get um, a history or a family tree of a main character, a main human character, right? We have the, that little space break on page five and then we jump into the Devil's Highway as a name that is set out to illuminate one notion, bad medicine. The first white man known to die in the desert heat here did it on January 18, 1541. Men, most assuredly others died before, right? We go into this kind of um, history of this place and we learn from it just how important this landscape is in this book. It really is its own character, right? And we go on the next page into some of the um, stories told about it. The plants are noxious and spiked um, and the wildlife is nocturnal, it creeps, poisonous, alien. And then there at the bottom, finally, as if the desert felt it hadn't made its point, it added killer bees. <laughs> I, I, um, so our, our main, um, in the opening of this book, our main like, uh, nemesis is this, is this landscape and it's contrasted heavily with the place that these people come from and the, and the um, soft water green of that place. So um, if we turn to the first day of winter, very different landscape, right? Um, but in a lot of ways, the landscape here is, is functioning in a somewhat similar way. The landscape ends up being the enemy kind of in a way. Um, what are some words that are used to describe the land in, in Pancake's first, first day of winter? Frozen. Yep. Anybody else? Yep. Yep, we have bare tree branches, right? Um, corn stubble laced with frost. Um, and then on um, page 165, I, I think this uh, little passage here is um, really important. In the faded morning, the land looked scarred. The first snows had already come, melted, and sealed the hills with a heavy frost. The sun could not soften. And every time that I read that sealed, I go back to that first sentence. Um, Hollis sat by his window all night, staring at his ghost in the glass, looking for some way out of the tomb Jake had built for him. Right, I think of sealed, sealed the tomb. And when we first enter the story, we don't know what that tomb that Jake had built for him is. Of course, by the end, we see that it, it's the land, right? It's this, this farm and he's kind of sealed into it. Um, the essential tension, the imbalance in this story for me is the fact that this, this isn't a land that is um, barren, right? This land actually is giving to this family. Um, on that first page, the work was done, silos stood full of corn, hay bales rose to the barn's roof, and the slaughter stock had gone to market. It was work done for figures in a bank for debts, right? So the farm is producing, but they, they're in so much debt that it, that it all just goes immediately to the bank. And so um, unlike the desert landscape, right, where, where it really is not a place where the humans can safely live, um, 
here the land, the imbalances that land is giving to this family, but they're in debt. And so in that way, the land also becomes an enemy in a way, right? And is sort of holding this character hostage. Um, and um, there's also a lot going on in this story, I think, with color um, that I want us to look at before, before we move on to the next reading. There's one thing that um, when I taught this story, um, I teach a writing workshop at the federal prison in Beckley, and um, I taught this story, and one of my students pointed this out, and I, I thought it was pretty remarkable. I hadn't really noticed this before, but he um, pointed out the red of the fox in this story. Um, so the fox comes in on page 166, um, and he was saying, if you thought about illustrating, if you were going to um, illustrate this story, your, the colors that you would use for the most part are white, gray, black, brown, um, and then the fox enters, right? And there's this splash of bright color there. Um, and Hollis, in a fit of meanness, he snapped the rifle to his shoulder. Um, and he, there's a lot of associations with a fox anyways, right? Um, but also that color, and he associates it with the, the fox with Jake. Um, it also comes in the moment in the story right before he has this kind of crisis of, of asking himself, like, could he kill his parents, right? Um, and we suddenly have this, like, flare up of color in the story. Um, and it made me think a lot about the, the chiaroscuro paintings and how that pancake, by holding back color throughout the rest of the story, it makes the color here much more vibrant and, and important, I think. You know, if he had used a lot of color throughout the story, we might not really notice the fox as much. But the fox, I think, is extremely important to this story. And um, we really see it in contrast to the kind of muted colors of, of the rest of the story. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through these readings, and then I'm going to leave some time at the end. So I'm just going to kind of keep moving through talking about what I'm seeing as far as techniques in these, and then we'll have time for discussion at the end. Um, so in addition to these kind of archetypes of good and evil, um, in addition to maybe layering in um, contrast into our landscapes, I think that another way that we might use contrast in our writing um, is through having our characters witness darkness. Um, and Bonnie Jo Campbell's Trespasser is a story that I like to use to talk a lot about witnessing. Um, there's two girls in this story, right, of sort of similar age, very, very different backgrounds, and they witness each other through a shared space. Um, in the opening of this story, we see the space through the perspective of the family. Um, the mother jiggles her key in the ancient lock, nudges open the heavy oak door with her shoulder, and then freezes on the threshold. The father steps around her, enters the kitchen of the family cottage. Last summer, he and his daughter painted these walls sunshine yellow and drops one of his two bags of groceries onto the linoleum. The 13-year-old daughter's mouth glitters with braces. She squeezes her gym bag to her chest and says, holy crap. So they're entering this space that's their space, right? That's a very safe space for them. And we, we have family cottage, sunshine yellow, father and daughter, daughter's mouth glitters with braces. Um, and then when we move to the next paragraph, um, this is where they begin to witness the trespasser, what the trespasser has left behind, right? We get burned black, scorched, shattered, broken, ammonia smell. 
Um, and this is how the family first experiences the trespasser. Meanwhile, she is a curly-haired blonde, right? And she's slipping out the back door. Um, but she, while she was there, she also witnessed the family through their objects, the things that they had left there. Um, condiments, pastel birthday candles, nests of twigs, and pale blue robin's eggs, um, and figurines and portraits long invisible to the family. I like, I like that line. I think that line is really important because so much of this place is invisible to the family because they're so familiar with it. And she's sort of rearranged things um, in a way so that she's seeing them, but they also, through this process, begin to see themselves also. Um, on page three, um, the, the expectations are subverted a little bit because the kitchen is scorched, right? Someone has come into this place. And um, so there are certain expectations probably of what occurred here. Um, and at first there seemed to be a few objects missing, right? Like it seems natural that like someone broke in and was cooking meth in your house, like they probably stole some things. Um, but the objects seem to be missing from the daughter's room, but the daughter discovers them in her closet where the trespasser slept five nights in a nest created from all the pillows in the house. She curled there with two stuffed ponies and a unicorn, the pink flannel pajamas that say daddy's girl, and the secret purple spiral notebook that is identical to the one the daughter keeps in the city. So again, the objects of the daughter, this is how the trespasser um, witnessed the daughter and her world that's very soft and pink and comfortable, right? Um, and that notebook, um, which Bonnie Jo Campbell does a really interesting thing with this notebook, I think, because she has the trespasser, not only does the trespasser read it and witness the daughter through it, but when we get it, we get it sort of like filtered and in reverse through the trespasser because we see everything that did not happen to the daughter, right? That's kind of how it's explained to us. Um, we have this, this paragraph, the daughter has made it more than 13 years without having spent a night with her dresser pushed up against her bedroom door to keep her mother's friends out. Nobody has ever burned her face with a cigarette and she has never burned her own arms with cigarettes just to remember how terrible it feels. The swimming daughter has never tried to shoot up with a broken needle, never spent time in the juvenile home or in the filthy bathroom of an abandoned basement apartment. She has never shaken uncontrollably in the backseat of a car all night long. The daughter has never broken a window to crawl into somebody else's place, has never needed something so badly that she would do anything for three men, strangers, to get it. And I think that's so cool because we learn so much about both of these girls simultaneously, right? Everything that the daughter has not gone through, but obviously everything that the trespasser has experienced. And we see um, her perspective as she was reading this journal that she was reading about the daughter, but she was also seeing herself, right? And in contrast, she sees how much she has gone through. Um, and then the daughter when she sees that mattress on the back porch, she witnesses her own privilege also um, in a way that the idea of the long invisible, the figurines and portraits that were long invisible, I think her privilege, the whole family's privilege was long invisible to them. But she sees her own vulnerability in the fact that um, like the nightmare that she dreams afterwards, um, the body on that mattress could in other circumstances have been hers, right? 
Um, so I think this, this story is really cool to, to study um, because of all the contrasts that are happening in it and the inversion and the way that, that Bonnie Jo Campbell um, helps us to see both of these girls through each other, even though they, they never actually interact with each other in person, right? Um, the other story that um, well, I wanted us to look at as far as witnessing is the Phil Clay's bodies. Um, deals with a lot of witnessing of darkness here too, right? Um, what the narrator has witnessed, but also what other people demand to witness through him. Um, we start off this short story with a story. There are several stories inside this story, right? So we start off with the story that the narrator says he tells people when they insist on knowing about his time in Iraq. Um, and this is a story that in the narrator's words is total bullshit. But it tells us so much about the narrator that this is the story that he chooses to tell people. So if I can get somebody to um, just name off, what are some of the details of this first story? Or what are some of the things that stood out to you about this first story that our, that our narrator tells us in Bodies? To be right. like, but he's made into the fool of the story. Okay, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a dark humor in that, and, like, yeah, his position is kind of um, switched up. Yeah. Anybody else, anything else that, that stood out to them about this bullshit story that he tells people when they insist on knowing about a rock? I think the details of it really struck mm -hmm. me, like, the, when the bag ripped and mm -hmm. cut the, the bottom mm -hmm. skin. Human soup, right? Yeah. <laughs> he calls it human soup running down his mustache. Um, and then there at the end, that, that detail that he says, if I'm telling the story sad, then he can stop there, right? But if he's telling it um, funny, then um, he goes on to say that the, that the colonel screamed like a bitch. Um, and um, so this, um, yeah, it, the story has dark some dark humor in it and some kind of over-the-top details in the way that he uses the words there, human soup and the, the mustache and screamed like a bitch. Um, there's another story inside of bodies also, right? Um, the story that the narrator tells at the end after he's drunk and he says that this is the story of the worst burn case, worst not in charring or loss of body parts, just worst. And what are some of the details of that story? Pebbles, yeah, those small rocks, right? Yeah. And what, is, um, what does Corporal G say about, about this, this instance, this, this man that's died? He says that guy could have been holding on to anything. Um, so this short story of bodies is bookended by these two stories, right? The human soup story and the two small rock story. Um, and it's the contrast between these two stories, I think, that makes the bigger story of bodies really work. Um, it's about the distance between the truth of a situation and what we say about that situation. Um, there's a line in here when um, the narrator is talking about dancing with the 38-year-old woman that he picks up at the bar, if you remember that part. And he says, we danced so far apart I could picture her 15-year-old daughter standing in the open space between us. 
And then this line always stands out to me because I think it's, you know, it's speaking about more than just the distance between them. I think that that space that he describes is also the gap between a lived experience and then the attempt to communicate about that. Um, it makes me think about, there's a, a quote from Dennis Johnson where he says, what could be lonelier than trying to communicate? Um, and I think that's really what this story is about, is a contrast between that flashy, grotesque human soup story, right? Which is one way of trying to communicate about um, what happened there, and also one way of interfacing with people's expectations about what that experience was, and this strange, quiet, heartbreaking, small stones story, um, which is a very different way of trying to communicate um, about the kind of um, uncommunicable, the, the, the space there that he can't, he has no words for what happened over there, and those are the two kind of opposite extreme ends of how he tries to communicate about it, and um, I think that um, that works well as a structure too here, like bookending this with these two very contrasting stories about the same essential experience. Um, I'm gonna have us shift a little bit now and, and um, those two stories we're talking about witnessing darkness um, and I'm gonna have us think for the last, when we look at the last three readings um, about um, writers who are creating characters um, with a real darkness within them. Um, and, and, you know, what does that look like? What are some different ways that, that we can um, use that? So the first one that we're going to talk about is where is the voice coming from? Um, and this, is, this story is really, it's full of ugliness, right? And it's really, it's not a very easy story to read or to talk about. Um, but I think that um, there's... There's some important stuff in here and some important choices that Eudora Welty makes that I think are really interesting to look at. Um, it's a real small little story, right? But Eudora Welty makes some pretty big decisions here. Um, she wrote this story in June 1963, the very night after she heard about the murder of civil rights activist Medgar Evers. Um, and there's a really great essay, if you're interested, um, that um, Casey Sepp wrote for The New Yorker that's about this story. Um, and um, I'm just going to quote from that um, essay just a little bit. The original title of this story was From the Unknown, yet much of its power comes from Welty's willingness to acknowledge how much she did know. In an interview with William F. Buckley, she later said, what I was writing about really was that world of hate I felt I had grown up with and I felt I could speak as someone who knew it. Um, this admission is powerful and scary, right? She admits that she's familiar with that world of hate. And she writes from that place, and she chooses to put it in first and then a little bit of second person, which I'm going to talk more about that. Um, in Sepp's um, words, the burden of judgment is imposed on the reader. The story is haunting because that burden is ours. And I think that that burden is especially accentuated by the use of second person. Um, so I'm going to have us look at some of the passages that are in second person here on that first page. Um, one, two, three like fourth paragraph, the last starts with the last two sentences there. It's where you all go for the thing you want when you want it most. Ain't that right? The branch bank sign tells you in lights all night long even what time it is and how hot. When it was quarter to four and 92, that was me going by in my brother-in-law's truck. He don't deliver nothing at that hour of the morning. So you leave four corners and head west on Nathan B. Forest Road past the surplus and salvage, not much beyond the comeback drive-in and trailer camp, 
not as far as where the signs start saying live bait, used parts, fireworks, peaches, and Sister Peebles reader and advisor. Turn before you hit the city limits and duck back towards the icy tracks. His street's been paved. So Wilsey implicates us here, right? We're driving alongside the narrator on the way to Roland Summers' house. Um, and she leaves that burden of judgment up to the reader. There is not a moment in this story where our narrator suddenly has an epiphany and realizes how incredibly horrific what he has done is. He is not arrested and taken off to jail. He is not put on trial. Um, we don't have that in here. Um, and yeah, no, no, please. They did get him, of course. Right, in and real life, they get him, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and he was just like that. Yeah, you know. and you know what's a really interesting thing note to note about this story is she wrote this story before anybody had found Byron Dilla Beckwith. She That's wrote this right. before anybody knew. And actually, when it was published in The New Yorker, they um, had her change a few details because it was, <laughs> she had written him so uncannily similar to the real-life man, Byron Dilla Beckwith, that, um, that they needed to change some things. Um, but she, she wrote it the next day before anybody had even you know, yeah, knew anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really... It's really strange and interesting, um, that part. And yes, they did, they did get him in real life, and then he, he didn't, yeah. I, I forget all the details of the, of the real life part of it, but he was eventually, you know, justice maybe was, you know, he was arrested, but, but yeah, we don't get any satisfaction of that within this story whatsoever at all. And I think um, you might be asking me, right, I'm talking about light and dark, and where is the light in here? And there's really, I mean, there's really not light in here, but I think that con when we think about contrast, what's fascinating to me about this story is how this, this wealthy created this story, it's so intimate, right? I mean, that feels like a weird word for me to use even with this story, but it really is, it begins almost like in the middle of a conversation. I says to my wife, you can reach and turn it off, right? Like it begins, we're so close up. She forces us to be so close up with this man and we begin right with him and we stay with him and that in contrast to the horrific thing that he does um, and I also think the contrast between um, what we as readers um, like to, to think about we like to think there's this huge distance between us and and anyone who would do anything like this right and I think especially maybe for people who would be reading this in The New Yorker in 1963, um, she's, she's forcing this voice, um, this very intimate portrait of this horrific person. Um, and so I think that, that inherently there's gonna be a contrast between most readers. <laughs> most readers I don't think would um, feel that this character was familiar to them but we're drawn so in especially with the the second person there um that um that yeah there's there's not a light in this but I think that there is a lot of contrast um this is a really yeah very complicated and interesting story and I want uh, I want us to, re to return to it and open it up um at the end um, but I also want us to to move on and think a little bit about um Toni Morrison's Beloved um and this, this is it from the middle of the book, and it, um, 
is two chapters. And there's actually another chapter that comes in between these, but I just excerpted this because I think that it's um, useful and interesting to look at how um, both, both of these stories are talking about the same event, but from very different perspectives, right? So even without reading the rest of the book, you probably got the idea from this that um, the first telling of this story is from the perspective of outsiders, people other than Setha, the school teacher, sheriff, etc. And then the other story is told in Setha's own words. Um, and we also get Paul D's perspective in there and Setha's part. Um, so I think it's useful for us to look at some of the language first in the in the first chapter that's used to describe the um, event um, and then look at how Setha talks about it. On page 149, um, inside, two boys bled in the, and this is really difficult to, to read and talk about. I just want to put it out there. Like, this is really, um, really tough. So we should just, yeah, be patient with ourselves. Um, and I think that it's important to look at, but it's ugly too. Um, inside, two boys bled in the sawdust and dirt at the feet of a woman holding a blood-soaked child to her chest with one hand and an infant by the heels in the other. She did not look at them. She simply swung the baby towards the wall planks, missed, and tried to connect a second time. When out of nowhere in the ticking time, the men spent staring at what there was to stare at. The old boy, still mewing, ran through the door behind them and snatched the baby from the arch of its mother's swing. Right off, it was clear, to school teacher especially, that there was nothing there to claim. Um, I am, every time I read this especially, keep going back to that there was nothing there to claim, right? The school teacher goes on to identify exactly what it is that they'd hope to claim, um, what it is that Setha is worth to them. Um, she's the woman school teacher bragged about the one he said made fine ink, damn good soup, pressed his collars the way he liked, besides having at least 10 breeding years left. Um, then he says, but she, but now she'd gone wild due to the mishandling of the nephew who'd overbeat her and made her cut and run. And he talks about the nephew's treatment of Setha in terms of animals. Um, school teacher had chastised that nephew, telling him to think, just think, what would his own horse do if you beat it beyond the point of education? Or Chipper or Samson, suppose you beat the hounds past that point that away. Um, so from this perspective, Setha, she's taken property, right? Useful, lucrative property away from school teacher and the nephews. And she's done this because she's an animal who was mistreated. Um, and on 151, the sheriff says of this situation that it's all testimony to the results of a little so-called freedom imposed on people who needed every care and guidance in the world to keep them from the cannibal life they preferred. So Sheriff sees a cannibal regressed to her natural state, and the school teacher sees a mistreated animal. And then we get Setha's perspective in the next chapter, right? Um, and on 163, this is how she explains what happened. Simple, she just flew, collected every bit of life she had made, all the parts of her that were precious and fine and beautiful, and carried, pushed, dragged them through the veil, out, away, and over there where no one could hurt them. Over there, outside this place where they would be safe. And on 164, she says, I stopped him, she said, staring at the place where the fence used to be. I took and put my babies where they'd be safe. So this is her version, right? She saved her children because she loved them so much. And we get Paul D's perspective where he says, your love is too thick. 
He says, what you did was wrong, Setha. And he also says, you got two feet, Setha, not four. And so we are returning there again to the idea also, right, of human versus animal and um, kind of grappling with um, what kind of person could do this or would do this, right? Um, and Morrison presents us with very contrasting perspectives, um, showing us a bunch of different views of this terrifyingly sad scene of Setha trying to save her children by killing them. Um, but in the end, we don't get a final verdict. Much like in the wealthy piece, we don't have anyone that comes out and tells us that this was the right decision that Setha made or no, there's absolutely no way that this could have been the right decision, right? We are just left with these very different perspectives and we have to kind of grapple with this inherently, obviously horrific situation that Setha was put in and then, um, and then what she did with it. And so I think that, that it's very, it can be useful and interesting in our writing to think about that contrasting perspectives on something, especially something like this complicated, right? And not resolving it for our reader, not coming up with any kind of answer. I mean, I think a lot of us, there's, I think most of us probably relate more to where Setha is coming from, but there is so, I think Paul D's perspective in there is very interesting too, right? Because even when he's hearing it from her voice, he says, your love is too thick, right? It's, it's very, it's a very complicated love that she has. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just, it just yeah. occurred to me it's so rare that we write about something that we don't actually know mm -hmm. if we can make a moral judgment because Morrison even said right. it was the right thing to do but she had no right to do it so she herself yeah. couldn't, couldn't yeah. make a sort of moral call yeah no yeah thank you yeah it's obviously it's it's very different than the than the wealthy piece because that there's an obvious moral judgment there right that there's an obvious right and wrong but with this one yeah i like that i hadn't i hadn't heard that quote but i like that a, a lot yeah, yeah yeah the right thing to do but she had no right to do it um and i think that that's a lot of where the really amazing texture of beloved comes from is that you get that feeling that tony morrison herself isn't even able to um to make a judgment which is a really interesting place to write from um, the last piece that I want us to, to look at before we jump into um, discussing some of these um, a little bit more is just to think about and look at um, in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried. Um, luckily, this has a little humor in it, so it kind of lighten things up a little bit there at the end for us. But, um, but here again, we have a lot of contrast. This is essentially a story of death, right? But it's told mostly through jokes and, and ephemera. Um, we begin with a line, tell me things I won't mind forgetting, she said, make it useless stuff or skip it. Um, so the narrator complies um, with this request, but we start to realize as we're moving through the story that the useless stuff is not really so useless, right? It actually leads us into the heart of the story. Um, but in the beginning, we're moving along with this kind of funny, upbeat rhythm, insects fly through rain, Bing Crosby, the shape of the moon. Um, and then we get this mention of down the hall in intensive care, um, which probably gives us pause the first time that we're reading this, right? And we're like, okay, so we're in a hospital. Um, but we push on, go on, girl, the friend says. And we get the story about the chimp lying. And then we get a hint of something more. There's more about the chimp, but it will break your heart. And the friend says, no thanks. 
And we get a little description of the masks, and then on page two, the line, two months and how long is the drive? And by this point, we're realizing that something serious is happening, right? The friend has been here for two months. Um, and then there's this explanation on page two. The best I can explain it is this. I have a friend who worked one summer in a mortuary. He used to tell me stories. The one that really got to me was not the grisliest, but it's the one that did. A man wrecked his car on 101, on 101 going south. He did not lose consciousness, but his arm was taken down to the wet bone, and when he looked at it, it scared him to death. I mean, he died. So I hadn't dared to look any closer, but now I am doing it and hoping that I will live through it. Um, and, and there it is, right? The ephemera and jokes that the narrator and the friend crave um, are both attempts to not look and also attempts to eventually look at what is actually going on and live through it. Um, and this moment reminded me of Phil Clay's bodies and that contrast between the story um, that gets you the most and the story that's the worst, this difference, right? So he also says that the, the worst burn story, that it's not the one that's worst as far as charred body parts, it's just the worst, right? Um, and she um, says here too, um, the one that really got to me was not the grisliest. Um, in both of these, I think these, the stories that get to them are the ones that are the most vulnerable. They're the most human. They're not the ones that are, yeah, the grisliest. Um, but it's terrifying to look at vulnerability. So we use jokes, useless stuff, or these kind of big, gaudy, dramatic stories like the human soup story. Um, we deflect. Um, so we move through this story and we keep getting bits of info that start to show us the depth of what's really happening. Um, lines like, because the good doctor is a little in love with her, he says maybe a year. Um, lines like, I miss her already. And these rear up in the midst of the jokes and the banter and the trivia. Um, and then there comes a moment where the narrator says that she has to go home and she's going to leave her friend there in the hospital, right? Um, and she says, I felt weak and small and failed, also exhilarated. And I think that so much is encompassed in that little list of contrasting emotions there. Um, the fact that, um, she, that this class of emotions, right, she does feel all of those things at once, weak, small, failed, but also exhilarated. And she goes into her kind of daydream, right, if she's going to take the car and go down the coast and drink sangria or whatever. Um, but she's feeling all of these things at once. And then she returns to this clash of emotions at the end of the story, once the friend is dead and is buried in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried, which, does anybody know much about Al Jolson? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a, he was an entertainer and um, comedian of sorts um, and um, performer, but he also performed a lot in blackface. So he's pretty, he's complicated um, also, I think a lot, like a lot in this story. Um, did you have, I don't know, anything more? Yeah. Um, so the narrator returns to her memories in the end, she returns to her memories of that moment in the hospital where she felt weak and small and failed, but also exhilarated. And she kind of plays with it, right? In the retelling, she says, maybe she would tell it that she stayed the night. Um, and so that, that moment of those contrasting emotions um, there is something that's like that's staying with her. And she made one choice in the moment um, and went with the exhilarated, right? But in the retelling, she kind of entertains the idea that, um, that maybe she stayed the night. Um, and then we end the story with the final anecdote, the other part of the story about the chimp, right? Um, 
I think of the chimp, the one with the talking hands. In the course of the experiment, that chimp had a baby. Imagine how her trainers must have thrilled when the mother, without prompting, began to sign to her newborn. Baby drink milk. Baby play ball. And when the baby died, the mother stood over the body, her wrinkled hands moving with the animal grace, forming again and again the words, baby come hug, baby come hug, fluent now in the language of grief. So this is that this is the other this is the the part of the story that the friend said no thanks to, um, and of course our narrator is also now fluent in the language of grief, um, and it makes it reminded me again also of the Phil Clay story. We have this kind of nice symmetry of the of, of the book ending of um, the the two the the funny chimp story versus this one, um, and and Phil Clay's body is the human soup versus the really. Um, quiet small to small stone story. So this is something as far as technique, I think that's interesting to to look at there. The way that she comes back to that, and she's been she hasn't been looking very closely the entire time, right? She says it's too painful to look, but here she's she's really looking. Um, she's fluent now in the language of grief. Um, so I'm going to have us do a short little writing exercise and then I'm going to have us come back and I have a, a couple of questions for you but I also will let you all lead a discussion just a little bit um, but if you can take out some paper I have two different writing prompts and you can choose one um, those of, of you who are in my workshop the first prompt you I already had you do a version of this so you might choose the other one but you might do it again either way is fine um, so this story in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried actually came from a prompt. Um, Amy Hempel was in a workshop with um, Gordon Lish, a, a writer and teacher and editor, and he has this um, prompt that he often gives that is um, write about the worst thing you've ever done. And that's where this story came from. So the story is it's a fiction story, right, but it's obviously based in um, autobiography. And at the bottom there at the end it says for Jessica Wolfson. Um, and this was Amy Hempel's answer to the worst thing she'd ever done. Um, and so if you can take this in a couple ways, you can either write about write this prompt from the perspective of one of the characters that you're working with, maybe a character from a piece that you workshopped, or from your own perspective. And write for just a, li a little while. I think I'm going to have us do this just for like five minutes. But write briefly about that, and then switch and write the, the worst thing you've ever done, and then the best thing. And this is all obviously in your own perspective or the perspective of your character. Um, the second prompt you could do if you wanted is thinking about the Bonnie Jo Campbell story. Um, think about having two characters and writing that kind of inverted, like what one character has never experienced, but that being in conversation with another character, so what they have. So in that way, in that one that the, you know, the daughter had never, had never, had never. Um, so. Um, We'll take like five minutes um, and do that.
take about one more minute. You can kind of maybe wrap up the line that you're writing. Um, for the sake of time, and also because this prompt is particularly sometimes um, pretty personal, and um, I'm, I'm not going to have us share right now, but in our discussion, if you want to talk about how that felt, um, or if you want to talk about it afterwards, um, or feel free to share, obviously, with each other afterwards. But I just think, especially that, that first prompt, um, is a good thing to ask our ask our characters um, and also an interesting thing to ask ourselves periodically and your answer might change it might not always be um, the same um, I'm gonna pose a start us off our, dis our discussion we have like 10 minutes left right um, with a question um, that that um, finish with like a, a thought kind of question and then we can take the discussion and of another direction if you want real quick but um, it, so Welty wrote after, later after that story, she wrote um, an essay called Must the Novelist Crusade, where she talks about having a stranger call her up one night and she says, the, the person said, all right, Eudora Welty, what are you going to do about it? It being racism in the South. Um, and in this essay, Welty says that she believes that political crusading and moralizing produces bad fiction, but a plot is a thousand times more unsettling than an argument which may be answered. The novelist, she says, works neither to correct nor to condone, not at all to comfort, but to make what's told alive. And when I read that, I, I kept thinking about the, the paintings, um, the Judith and Holofernes paintings, and how the, the painters didn't soften those images for us and make them more palatable or help us decide if Judith was in the right to do what she did, right? They just simply painted them so as to make it come alive. So I'm just curious about thoughts on, on that concept or as it relates to that piece or just in general, maybe. Yeah. As you were talking throughout this, this seminar, I kept thinking about how important proximity mm. is. And you keep coming back to that point about the means of the shared story, it's the, the point at which they meet, you know? Right. But you really, the seminar was really great about pointing out how close and how intimate and how personal these things have to be. And when I started, I did the worst thing, best thing yeah. prompt, and without going into it, what was really kind of curious, and what I hadn't even thought about in my life before, was that the worst thing and the best thing were both connected. Oh, wow. In this, in Interesting. Uh, you know, they, they rose from the same huh. situation, and I just thought how I would not have come to that thought without these observations on proximity and darkness and light. Right. No, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, that, that is re that's really interesting. Yeah, that our worst things and best things sometimes are, yeah, not too far from each other. It's funny, because when I did that in workshop, uh -huh. one, was one was an act of violence and one was an act of love. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I had, when we did it in workshop, I had them do the, um, their 
the students each did their worst thing and then their characters um, worst thing but to think about that but yeah yeah anybody else yeah Mm -hmm. I was most focused on beloved because you know, like you were saying, that kind of like duality of not being yeah. able to, not justifying the killing of your own child, yeah. but also like those people that were animalizing her and they were turning her animal into an object. Yeah, you don't want that for your kids. No, she saved them from that, right? Shitty. Yeah, you know, so yeah, it's like, uh, it's like it, it, in beloved, it was more like it resurrected sensations, it resurrected this kind of like. Like that the quote alive, but it's right. also it, it gave it emotion, it yeah. gave it movement. Um, whereas if say you were reading a report of the what yeah. the story was based off of, you're getting the facts and the information, mm -hmm. but in the story you're getting the entire kind of like conflict and you're also getting the actual like the heartbeat of it, the, the pulse of, a, of of this mother going, I have to take my ch children away from here, oh, yeah. I'm trapped, yeah. I have to kill them. Yeah. Like that, that instance like holy shit, well, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. Like what other? Uh, what? Well, yeah. What are the options? Mm -hmm. Because like the, the contrast of having someone go, yeah, um, you, you beat them too hard. That's why this animal ran away. Right. Um, to have someone project that image onto yeah. you and then have that contrast of the mother going, well, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we get that other perspective first, right? I think that it's really interesting and 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 important in certain ways that Morrison has us see it through the outside perspective and then and then hers right in a way that we actually understand like her more by seeing it from the outside first yeah and it's so interesting she did pull that from fact like it it's a true story it is a true story yeah 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 like what yeah that was a real human who in history that that you know like what would that feel like to be in that situation and yeah yeah anybody else also any anything um during our remaining time that you want to to talk about these we have five minutes left um any of the readings too it doesn't just have to be related to this question but yeah you know i've never been able to get through the entirety of blood meridian and maybe i'll go back and try again <laughs> It's yeah. A tough book it's, yeah, it's not a, it's not an easy it's not an easy read, um, but but it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, other other people. Any who else is yeah. Um, this is a bit piggybacking off of what you was talking about, but uh, through this exercise, I was noticing that uh, in order, especially when writing in the first person, when someone is doing something horrible, there always has to be a completely immaculate in their head at least justification for it because I never feel that if someone's going about to do something malicious that they have the intent well this is a malicious and inexcusable act or if they do so then they somehow paint themselves to be a martyr of sorts mm. they're like somehow sacrificing their own integrity or self for the sake of something that they think is worth it so I think that they're necessary there has to be some sort of, of positive justification even if it's completely off base uh, to act as an impetus for any sort of, of vicious or violent or vile action. Right, right. Yeah, and we see that contrastingly, I and mean, we see that in the wealthy piece, right? And in and, and Morrison, we see that the characters, um, how they conceive themselves in these moments of violence. Yeah. Thank you. 
Um, you know, another way of thinking about light and darkness, and maybe this is like a little bit off topic, uh-huh. but you know, we often associate darkness with evil, mm-hmm. right? Which is something that I've actually always bristled a little mm-hmm. bit against um, because it's hard for me not to see that as connected with race politics. Yeah. Um, so I've always sort of like bristled a little bit mm-hmm. on that. But like sort of another way to think about darkness, um, I read this really big book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And it was written by um, a biblical scholar, and I'm blanking on her name. But she actually points out that a lot of the revelations in the Bible, and actually in a lot of religious traditions, are actually given in the dark. Mm, mm-hmm, like during mm-hmm, the time, mm-hmm. in the dark. Yeah. So, I mean, I sort of love thinking about darkness rather as maybe the unknown. Yeah. Right? And. The unknown is actually a really beautiful place, mm-hmm. and it can be really scary, right. which is why we sometimes think it's evil, right. you know, because we're terrified right. of the dark, but yet the dark or the unknown is so often where revelation It's a really happens. fruitful place, right? Yeah. No, thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah. Just, I mean, I, I don't know if that's directly related to No, I think it is. I mean, I think it's very important to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and black yep. is the color yep. of death. Right. And, and, and black is the color yep. of, you know, yep. like beauty and sex and mm-hmm. brightness and all of that. So, I mean, I think on the other hand, the yin and yang, you know, if you look at it just that way, you can't have one. Right. The other. That's another way of thin